My name is Keith Cowart, lead pastor of Christ Community, and each week I or one of our pastors will bring a message that we pray will stir your heart. We believe that God is the source of life and truth and that His Word is one of the primary means through which we make that vital connection with God. It's our hope that whether you're already a believer or just beginning to open your heart to God, that the truth of His Word would point you to Him. He came that you would have life and that more abundantly. We are in the book of John, and so if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn there. We are going to be studying through the entire Gospel of John this year. And this morning, we're, we're early in the study. We want to look at, uh, beginning in verse 35 through 51 of chapter 1, this is the, the story. It's actually two stories, back to back. Two stories of the calling of the first disciples. So John 1, 35 through 51. But before we go there, let me just touch on this. When you read in the other Gospels, what we call the synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called synoptic because they're very similar. When you look at the synoptic Gospels, you see a very different story. Uh, The one that you're about to read is, is one account And then you hear a different one in the other account. In the other account, uh, Jesus is walking along the shoreline and he sees Peter and Andrew in their boats fishing and he calls on them to follow him and they immediately drop their nets and follow after him. Then they go to James and John and the same thing happens there. Uh, in one case, Jesus even works a great miracle where he tells them to, they've been fishing all night, they haven't found, caught anything, so Jesus says, throw your nets on the other side, they bring up a great bounty. Well, the account we're about to read is radically different. And it's caused a lot of people to ask the question, why do we have these two completely different stories? Some people are disturbed by it because they say, you know, the, here you've got four Gospels and they don't all agree on how the first disciples were called. Can I share with you what I think is happening here? Um, I don't know this for a fact, but I believe this. Um, I believe that what we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is a later meeting between Jesus and his disciples. Um, He has been meeting with them for some time. That is his final call to say, okay, are you coming with me or not? And because if you look at it carefully, it seems that they already know him. They call him master. It seems that they've already got some understanding of who he is. I believe that the account we're about to read is the very first encounter that Jesus had with his disciples. So there is a gap between this encounter and that encounter. And in between, Jesus is making himself known, and then he finally calls them to come after him and be his disciples. So with that background, let's, let's look at this very first meeting between Jesus and his disciples. And here's what I want to do. This morning, I want to just read through this slowly. And I'm going to stop at places and, and insert a few comments just to help us get the big picture of what's happening here. Then I want us to look carefully at the four people who are named as these first disciples. And then lastly, I want to, I want to make sure that we see the pattern of discipleship that is found in this story. So beginning in verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, 
they followed Jesus. Now I want to remind you that this John is not the John who wrote the gospel. This is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is saying again now for the second time, look, the Son of God. And immediately what happens is two of his closest and most important disciples turn and follow Jesus. Now we said last week, if you did not get that message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Because we said that John had a firm grip on his ministry, on his calling. His calling was not to be the star of the show, but to prepare the way for the star of the show. He understood very clearly that he was not the light, that Jesus was the light. This is what he continued to proclaim over and over again. He said, I'm not the one that you're looking for. I'm pointing you to the one who will come. John the Baptist came to reveal Jesus, not to be Jesus. But what's powerful here is that we see in this first few lines of this account that John the Baptist is practicing what he has been preaching. He is proclaiming that Jesus is greater, but let's just be honest. At this moment when Jesus comes back on the scene and he points to Jesus and says, this is the one that you need to be following, he understood very well that he was about to lose his following. And I want to tell you that it takes a great man to be able to release those to go beyond himself. And that's exactly what John is doing. John is preparing the way and he is practicing what he preaches. That's why Jesus would say about him later on, there is no one who has been born of man or woman that is greater than this man, John. John fully embraced what Jesus, what God had given him to do so that Jesus could be glorified. He goes on from there in verse 38 and we see these words. They said to him, Uh, Jesus turned around, saw them following, and asked, what do you want? What do you want? Let me just stop there and say this, that that is the question of the ages. That is the question. By the way, these are the very first words that Jesus speaks in John's gospel. And I think it's powerful that those are his first words. His first words are to ask the question that will be asked of every man and every woman for the rest of time. What do you want? What do you want? Do you want a conversation? Do you want information? Do you want, uh, do you want to be entertained? Do you want success? Are you looking for power? Are you looking for fame or are you looking for life that is truly life? Jesus is saying to them and he says to us, what do you want? That is where discipleship begins, where we have to ask ourselves a hard question. What is it I truly want in life? That was his question for them and that's his question for us today. And look at their answer. They say to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? Jesus replied, come and you will see. Now, I think it's almost comical that, that their answer to his question is not an answer at all. Jesus says, what do you want? And they don't give him an answer. They give him another question. Where are you staying? Now, now some scholars have said that this is kind of like that moment. I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments. You ever been somewhere where somebody really famous came into the restaurant where you were or at the hotel or, or maybe you're just out shopping and you saw somebody really famous. Do you ever follow them for a little while and just kind of stalk them a little bit? 
And what you're really wanting to do is you want to see them, but then if they turn around and see you, you kind of panic, right? Uh, some people have said that's what's happening here, that they realize that Jesus is, is someone really, really special. And, and they're following him, but more out of curiosity at this point. And, and when Jesus turns and confronts them with the question, what do you want? They're caught off their guard and they just kind of begin to babble. Well, where are you staying? Well, that, that doesn't seem to make any sense at all. It initially does it. Unless what they're saying is this. We have already heard about you. We know what John has said about you. And we want to come where you are. We want to come where you are. We want to come into, where do, you, where do we live? Where do we do life? It's in our house. And they're saying, Jesus, can we come to your house Can we come be with you? That seems to be what they're asking. And Jesus responds in this way. Well, let me just say this first of all. I think it's very important that Jesus does not condemn them at this point in any way. I mean, Jesus meets them right where they are. He He doesn't make fun of them because their answer is not an answer. He doesn't challenge them with what is the meaning of your question. Jesus just responds very, very simply, come and see, come and see, come with me and see, and you will see, you will have eyes that can see. We move on to verses 40 through 42. Andrew, this is uh, the first time that any of them are named, and so one of the two disciples that leaves John and follows Jesus is a, a man named Andrew, Simon Peter's brother was one of the two who heard what John had said and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And he took him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him. Well, let's just stop there. And he brought him to Jesus. Uh, The very first thing that Andrew does is that he goes and tells his brother. And again, I think this is telling because when we come into an experience of tasting life that is truly life. When we come into an experience where our eyes are open, our spiritual eyes are open, and we can now begin to see, the first impulse is, I've got to tell somebody. I've got to tell somebody else what God has done for me. And that's exactly what Andrew does, and I think it's powerful that he goes to his brother, to his brother. Discipleship begins in the home. That is the most basic place of discipleship. One brother telling another brother or a parent telling a child. Discipleship begins in the home. And the first thing that Jesus does is give Peter a brand new name. Verse 42b, this is what he says. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which translated is Peter. Jesus is saying to him, from now on, you will be known as the rock. The rock. (laughs) Not that one. There was one called the rock 2,000 years before this rock. And that's the one that Jesus was talking about. Cephas literally means the rock. And that is the name that he gives Peter. We then move on to the second story. The very next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. 
Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, this time the invitation is to follow me. Before it was come and see, but now it is to follow me. And in the Greek, the, the verb tense is present, which means continuous action. In other words, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, come follow me to my house. Jesus is inviting them to come follow him as a way of life. He's saying, come follow me, come get to know me, come after me. And, uh, and he does. Philip follows after him. But again, just as Andrew did... Philip's very first impulse is to go tell someone else. This time it's not to a brother, but to a friend. And so friend Philip goes and he tells his friend um, Nathaniel. And, and just imagine yourself in this thing. Now, there's, a, there's all kinds of indication that all four of these men had been following John, which means they had been looking for the Messiah, They've been following John for a year, listening to John say, the Lamb of God is coming, and now recently he has said, the Lamb of God is here, and now Philip has followed Jesus, and Jesus has essentially said to him, I am he. So immediately Philip runs to Nathanael, and he says, Nathanael, the one we've been looking for, we have finally found. And I'm sure he expected Nathaniel to immediately start jumping up and down and celebrating with him, but that's not at all what happens. Do you, you see what happens here? What does Nathaniel say in response when he says, he has come from Nazareth? His first response is, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nazareth? Can anything good come from that place? Now, I just want to say this. I don't think this is because Nazareth had a bad reputation, like it was a bad city. The point is, actually, Nazareth had no reputation. It was a teeny tiny place of just a few families. And so what Nathaniel is saying is this, how could the Messiah come from a place like Nazareth? Yeah, Pam and I were able to go there a few years ago on a trip to Israel. And now today it's a pretty big city. But back in those days, it was just a handful of homes in one little bitty place called Nazareth. And yet that is the place that God chose to see the Son of God raised, and that's from which he came. Now, when you look at this, I love Philip's response. Philip's response to him is exactly the same as Jesus was to him earlier, or to, to Andrew and, uh, um, and in Peter. He says to them, come and see, come and see. He doesn't get in a debate with him. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't shame him for thinking lowly of the Messiah. He does exactly what Jesus had done earlier. He says, Nathaniel, all I can tell you is this, come and see, come and see. Just come with me and see what I have seen. That's his invitation. Philip's confidence is not in his powers of persuasion. Philip's confidence and our confidence should be not in our power of persuasion. But our confidence should be that those who see Jesus will have their eyes opened. 
Those who see Jesus will have their hearts warmed. Those who come and see Jesus will see the one who can change their life forever. There is absolutely something good that can come from Nazareth. And now let's just read the rest of the passage, beginning in verse 7. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching him, he said, Now here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I said I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending as on the Son of Man. On the Son of Man. And so Nathanael walks up and Jesus immediately says to them, you are an Israelite. In the old King James it says, with no guile. No guile. That was an old word that meant uh, the lure that was meant to attract a fish that would eventually deceive the fish into biting the hook. He's saying to him, that is not who you are. You are a true man. Your heart is sincere. Your heart is authentic. And Nathaniel, being an authentic person, says to him immediately, how can you say that I'm authentic? You don't even know me. Jesus says to him, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Now, I don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. But whatever it was, he knew that Jesus knew not just that he was sitting under the fig tree, he knew what was happening under the fig tree. Because he responded with, you are the son of God. Now, I mean, if you just walk by and saw somebody sitting under the fig tree, I mean, anybody can see somebody sitting under a fig tree, right? We're not told exactly what's happening there, but here's what we know. I will say this, there is in the Old Testament this idea that the fig tree was a symbolic place where those came to, those, where rabbis and others came to study the Torah. So it may have been that he was reading the Torah. Possibly he was having a, a, a moment of intimacy with God where he was trying to understand something. Possibly he was crying out to God. We don't know exactly what was happening, but what we do know is that Jesus saw right through him. And he knew immediately, this man can see my soul. And only the Son of God can do that. John will say at the end of chapter 2, Jesus knew what was in the heart of a man. And I believe that this is just proof that that's true. Jesus saw exactly what was in the heart of Nathanael, called him out, and Jesus revealed himself to him as the Son of God. Um, Philip's response, you are the son of God. I love Jesus' response here. Jesus essentially says, I'm just going to paraphrase this for you, but Jesus essentially says to Philip, Philip, if you think that's awesome, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. Because what you're about to see is angels descending and ascending. That's a reference, by the way, to Jacob's ladder in the Old Testament. 
There's a point there where Jacob is wrestling with God. He's all by himself and an angel of the Lord comes. He's wrestling with God. He is weary. He's injured. He's lying there before, in a heap before the Lord. And the Lord gives him a vision of angels descending and ascending on a ladder. And in essence, what God was saying to Jacob is, Jacob, you are not alone and I have called you to something great. You are going to see supernatural things happening in your lifetime. John tells us that according, where actually Jesus tells us, John records it, Jesus reveals that he is the ladder. He is the ladder. He is the one that brings heaven onto earth. He is the one by whom and through whom heaven invades earth. And that is Jesus' message to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, if that little bit of revelation could cause you to see that I'm the Son of God, you're about to see a whole new world open up to you because heaven is about to invade earth. Now, this is the story. I want to take just a moment to look more carefully at the four key figures, the four men that are named. By the way, the one who is not named, we're told that the first two that left John, one of them was Andrew, where the other one's not named. Most scholars believe that's John himself, the one who wrote the gospel, not John the Baptist. That that's John, because John does have this habit of including himself in the story, but not naming himself. That says something about John, doesn't it? I mean, John's interest is not to, to further his own reputation, but to further the cause of Jesus. But we're just going to talk about the four who are mentioned. And it starts with Andrew. And I love how Andrew is named here. And by the way, it's the way he's named pretty much every time he's mentioned. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. Anybody here ever been known as the brother of or the sister of someone else? You ever been known as the son or daughter of? Uh, you ever been known as a husband or wife of? I can tell you that as, as Pam and I get older and older, I begin to find more and more that I'm known as Andrew and Aaron's father. Uh, not, not Keith, but just their dad. Um, the point here is this. Andrew's whole identity was tied to someone else who was deemed more impressive. Who was deemed more impressive. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, have you ever felt like you, you, know, you just got overlooked? That everybody noticed your brother, your sister, your parents, or your sons and daughters, that everybody sees someone else and they don't see you. I think it's powerful that Jesus chooses Andrew first. Jesus goes to Andrew first. It will be Peter who becomes a part of the inner circle who becomes a part of the three that, that are closest to Jesus. It will be Peter for whom uh, Jesus says, you, it is on your faith that I will build my church. But I think it's powerful that Jesus went first to Andrew. Can I just say today that there would be no Peter if there was no Andrew? Let me ask you this. How many of you, well, how many of you have heard of Billy Graham, right? Raise your hand. Pretty much everybody in the room has heard of Billy Graham. How many of you know who led Billy Graham to the Lord? I don't know. Maybe a few of you have studied it. I can, I can tell you because I've, I looked it up. And, and I, found a, I found a story I had no idea I was getting into. I just thought, you know, it'd be interesting to know who brought Billy Graham to the Lord. Here's the story. 
Mordecai Ham was an evangelist, not nearly as great of an evangelist as Graham, but Mordecai Ham was an evangelist, and it was in one of his crusades that Billy Graham was saved. But Mordecai Ham was saved under the ministry of a man named um, uh, Billy Sunday. Some of you may have heard of Billy Sunday. He was also a famous evangelist in the day. Billy Sunday had been a great baseball player who got converted and immediately became a fiery evangelist. And so Billy Sunday won Mordecai. Mordecai won Graham. But guess who won Billy Sunday? It was a man by the name of Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman was also an evangelist. And Wilbur Chapman, it was in one of his crusades that uh, Billy Sunday came to the Lord. But guess where uh, Wilbur Chapman was saved? He got saved at at an evangelistic crusade of Dwight L. Moody. Some of you have heard of the Moody Bible Institute. It was founded uh, in his name. But guess where Dwight L. Moody got saved? Dwight L. Moody was a boy who was brought to the Lord by his volunteer Sunday school teacher named, and this is how much, I can't even remember, Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball, do you see what God did through a man named Edward Kimball that you have never heard of? A man that you've never heard of was used by God to win a man named Dwight L. Moody, who won a man named Wilbur Chapman, who won a man named Billy Sunday, who won a man named Mordecai Ham, who won a man named Billy Graham. One volunteer Sunday school teacher. Right now, there are men and women who are behind those doors teaching our children. And who knows that God may not be using one of them to raise up the next Billy Graham. You see, you may think of yourself like an Andrew, and maybe in your mind, that means you're not much. But I want to tell you that when God sees you, he sees one through whom he can change the world. He called Andrew first, and then Andrew won his brother to the Lord. And then that takes us to Simon Peter. There is no question but that Simon Peter stood out in a crowd. I mean, everywhere Peter went... He was, uh, he was very much uh, the, the center of attention. I mean, he was just one of those men. He was bold. He was boisterous. He was spontaneous. He was a man of action. And there's no doubt that those are qualities that made him a great, great leader in the years to come. But let me tell you what else Peter was. Not only was he bold, boisterous, spontaneous, and a man of action, but he was also impulsive. Impulsive. Peter had this interesting habit of speaking before he thought. You ever know anybody like that? That just blurted things out and as soon as they said it, they thought, oh gosh, I can't believe I said that. I mean, how many times do we see Peter jumping out there, speaking something and immediately regretting it? That's the kind of man Peter was. He was impulsive and he just said things. He didn't even know what he was saying. Um, He was mercurial. He was up one minute and down the next. Peter was up and down. I mean, when he was on his highs, he was really, really high. And when he was low, he was really, really low. I mean, that's the kind of man Peter was. Peter was complex. I mean, in the, in the course of one 24-hour period, Peter demonstrated his bravery and heroism when he took a sword and cut off the ear of a guard who was coming to take Jesus. But do you know what he was doing just a few hours later? 
He was cowering before a little girl and wouldn't even acknowledge that he knew Jesus. Peter was all over the map. And that's why I think it's fascinating that Jesus says to him, Peter, your new name is The Rock. I'm going to tell you, that name does not fit Peter at all where he is in the story right now. I mean, I mean maybe strong, yes, but, but a rock is something that is stable, something that is unmovable. And that is anything but Peter. Peter is all over the place. But here is the point. When Jesus saw Peter, let me tell you, he saw everything because, we've already said it, he knew what was in the heart of a man, right? Jesus knew before Peter did that he would deny him three times. I'm telling you that when Jesus saw Peter, he saw everything there was to know about Peter. But you know what he focused on? He did not focus on his flaws. He did not focus on all the things that, that brought him down. Jesus focused on who he would become in him. He didn't focus on his current reality. He focused on his future of this is what you will be because you follow me. And I want to tell you that Jesus knew something 2,000 years ago that I think many of us, it takes us a long time to figure out. And here's what Jesus knew. Jesus understood that people respond more to hope than they do shame. People respond more to faith than they do reality. Jesus spoke into Peter's heart words of hope, words of hope. I'm going to tell you, there's some of you who are here today, and all you can see is the reality of where you are today. And that is not something that causes you to feel good about yourself. But I want to tell you that Jesus sees not just who you are, but Jesus sees who you will become. That's exactly what he saw with Peter, and that's what he sees in you as well. And then we have Philip. And Philip is an interesting person in this story. Because the truth of the matter is, we know almost nothing about Philip. Uh, There's very little said about him at all. And what little is said is not very flattering. I mean, he's mentioned like three times in the Gospel of John. And you know what's happening on those three times? The first one is the story of the the feeding of the 5,000. And so the boy comes with loaves and fishes. And you know what Philip says when Jesus says, you know, let, let's, let's start feeding all the people. Philip says, we need more money. We need more money to buy more stuff because this is not nearly enough. Uh, Philip could not see with eyes of faith what Jesus was about to do. A little bit later, there's some Greeks that come looking for Jesus. And they come to Philip and they say to Philip, would you take us to Jesus? You know what Philip does? He runs and finds Andrew. It's almost like Philip says, I I don't know what to do. I'm going to go find Andrew. And he goes and finds Andrew. Then they take him together. And then the third time he's mentioned is in the upper room when Jesus is talking to them about going away. And and Philip says to him, Jesus, just show us who the Father is and that's enough. And Jesus' response is, Philip, you've been with me all this time and you still don't know who I am? You don't know that when you see me, you see the Father? At the very least... We've got to say that Philip was a shy, very shy man who was probably not particularly impressive. There wasn't a lot about Philip that was impressive. In fact, some people have gone so far as to say that we might call Philip a little slow. That Philip was not one of the, 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 the quick ones, one who got it quickly. But Philip was one who was a little slow. And yet, 
Jesus chose Philip to be one of the 12 that would change the course of history. Philip. Now, Philip's friend, Nathaniel, is even more of a mystery. It's more of a mystery because Nathaniel is only mentioned one more time in the Gospel of John. That's later at the very end of the book. And he is never mentioned in the other Gospels. Not even when they give the list of the twelve. Nathaniel never shows up. And so there's all kind of mystery about who is this Nathaniel. I mean, some have said that Nathaniel was probably Bartholomew. And the reason for that is that Bartholomew means son of Ptolemy. And that's kind of like, uh, you know, a junior being known by the name of their father. Ricky is the son of Richard. And a lot of times that, that son has a, a name that he's called, but he also has a given name. And so some have said that Nathaniel's given name was Nathaniel, but he came to be called Bartholomew. The, the point being, he is, he's, he, that's probably who he is. Um, uh, you know, I don't know about that for sure. I, I don't know if that's the truth or not. What we do know is that even there in the other Gospels, the only place he's mentioned, even if it's Bartholomew, he's only mentioned in the list of the disciples. We don't know one single thing that he ever said. We don't know one thing he ever did. And yet, Jesus chose him to be one of the twelve I'm not so sure that Nathaniel is not just a figure whom Jesus called, and it may be that he didn't follow him ultimately, or it may be that he followed him but not as one of the twelve. I'm not sure why we feel like we've got to make him one of the twelve. The point is he had an encounter with Jesus. I think the real point of his story is simply to draw out the point that Philip came and found his best friend as soon as he came to know the Lord. But you take all this together, and here's something I want you to see. It was common in those days for rabbis to build their following. But it was also common that they would go to the cream of the crop to get their following. Every rabbi wanted the best of the best. I mean, to, to be a follower of a rabbi was in those days to be a rock star. I mean, this was, the, this was as good as it got. So it was a very honorable thing, a prestigious thing, if you will, to be the follower of a rabbi, to be a disciple of a rabbi. And so they were able to go to the cream of the crop. They were able to find the best of the best to follow them. And yet Jesus goes to everyday, ordinary people that are just like you and me. Jesus does not go to the ones that the world says are great. Jesus goes for the ones that he calls into relationship with himself and through whom people that are not big in their own eyes, but people who understand that apart from him, I can do nothing. I can do nothing. You want to know the kind of people Jesus is looking for? That's it. He's looking for those who understand that apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. Now, I also want you to see, and we'll close with this, the pattern of discipleship in this story. The pattern of discipleship begins when Jesus says, come and see, come and see. I think those words are so inviting because what Jesus is saying here is, I'm not calling you to, to come join a cause. I'm not calling you to become a part of an institution. 
I'm not calling you to, to become a member of, a, of an institution. I am calling you into a relationship with me in which your eyes will be opened and you will be able to see. It is an invitation to relationship. That is the invitation to each of us today, to come and to see. Jesus says, I'm inviting you into an experience. This is not even just about coming and learning about me. It is coming and being with me. And there your eyes will be opened. And then the second thing we see in the pattern is that as soon as their eyes are opened, the first thing they do is they go and find their brother or their friend. That is the pattern that we see. That as, as one set of eyes are opened, they immediately go to share the good news with somebody else. That's their first response. So let me just, let me just spell this out for us very clearly. I want you to understand that the greatest evangelists are not the guys you see on TV. And they're not the guys you see up here speaking uh, on this stage. The greatest evangelists are everyday, ordinary people who impact the lives of those they know best. Can I tell you that the, the, um, the statistics on the great crusades are that only 3 or 4% of people that come to those and get saved end up following Jesus for life? They're they're not very successful at all. Do you know that 85% of those who follow Jesus for their lifetime will tell you they were led to the Lord by a friend or family member? By a friend or family member. When we come and see, the most natural thing and the most important thing that we can do is to go and tell. But you don't have to go to a street corner. You don't have to go to a, to a stage. You don't have to go to a platform. Go to your family. Go to your friends and tell them simply what Jesus has done for you. Uh, they also, studies will say, that the greatest evangelists are those who've been saved for less than two years. Now, this is a statistic that saddens my heart. Because what they're saying is this, is that people are most excited about telling others about Jesus when they first get saved. I'm not sure what happens, but I've got an idea. I think there comes a point where we begin to be more concerned about our reputation, more concerned about our dignity, more concerned about the way other people see us. We begin to want to find more balance in our lives. And the the more balance we seek, the more the fire begins to die in our souls. And so I would say to many of us who've been walking with Jesus for a long, long time, many of us may need to pray, and I want to join you in this prayer this morning. God, take me back to my first love. Take me back to my first love. Give me once again that passion for you that I had when I first got saved. Restore into me all that's been lost or or numbed out of me by religion over the years. And take me back to that first place where my eyes were open and I could see for the very first time. And then Jesus says that once you go and tell, the best thing that you can say to one who responds is the same thing he said to you. Here's the pattern. Come and see, go and tell, and when someone responds, your answer to them is come and see. That's exactly what Philip does for Nathaniel. And I want to tell you today that if you've ever asked the question, you know, or if you've ever had the thought, I just don't know what to say. 
I don't know what, I'm not a preacher. I'm not an evangelist. I don't, I don't have that experience. I hadn't been to seminary. Can I tell you to, with great humility that the greatest sermon that's ever been preached is a personal testimony of what Jesus Christ has done to change a person's life? There is no other sermon that's more powerful than that. The greatest thing that you can tell someone else is, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. That's all you have to do is just tell them, come and see. Like Philip, our confidence is not in our powers of persuasion. Our confidence is in the life-giving power of Jesus Christ. Come and see. We're going to close today. Before we call you to response, I just want to close by having us sing together the song, Come Just As You Are. Come just as you are. Jesus did not say to Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, clean up your act and I'll accept you. Jesus said to them, come just as you are and I will give you a new identity. Come just as you are and I will open your eyes so that you can see. Come just as you are and I will give you new life. Come and you will see.